Welcome, everybody, to the ongoing nightclub interview series, where my guest today is the esteemed neuroscientist Antoine Lutz. But before we get started, as usual, a few brief housekeeping items. Our book study group on the Dreams of Light book is still going on, and you're most welcome to join us. We probably have at least another four more months to go. My second book of the year, the Lucid Dreaming Workbook, was just released. I have to say the workbook format was really fun to create. Things are relatively quiet with the upcoming holidays on the teaching front, so stay tuned for future events around all that. As for my guest today, the neuroscientist Antoine Lutz belongs to that rare breed of contemplative scientist who simultaneously brings rigorous science to his serious meditation practice. I met Antoine over 10 years ago when I was invited to his lab at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and spent many hours in the fMRI doing a number of imaging studies. Since then, we've attended conferences and retreats together, and I consider him a dear friend. Our conversation begins with a look at neurophenomenology, a term coined by the groundbreaking scientist Francisco Varela, and a term that underlies much of the scientific exploration of meditation. Francisco was an absolute giant in this world, and Antoine was one of his main students and eventual colleagues. In this conversation, Antoine and I talk about the importance of honoring first-person perspectives, that's the phenomenology part, and third-person perspectives, or the neural part, without reducing one to the other. Dr. Lutz discusses his extensive research around pain and the importance of de-automatization, how we're essentially automatons running on automatic ignorance, where everything we experience is automatically referenced to self, a referencing that actually creates all our suffering and the very sense of self. This unconscious referencing also generates the sense of duality altogether, which is something that could possibly be studied in the lab. What is the promise and peril of scientifically studying meditators? Why should a meditator care about any of this? Using science, philosophy, psychology, and the wisdom traditions, this conversation ranges from the theoretical to the personal, from the abstract, things like intersubjective realism, to the really practical, how to work with pain. I think you'll quickly see why Dr. Lutz is one of the pioneering researchers exploring the meditative mind and how his work is really benefiting the world. Hi, everybody. Andrew Holacek here. I'm really excited to introduce and spend the next hour or so with, with a dear friend of mine and really one of the leading neuroscientists studying the interface between the contemplative traditions and science altogether. And so as usual, I will do a brief, um, somewhat formal introduction of Antoine, and then we're going to jump right in because we've got a host of uh, really delicious topics that I think we're going to be discussing. So Dr. Antoine Lutz is currently a director of research 
at the French Medical Research Institute in the Lyon Neuroscience Research Center, where he co-leads the experiment, I'm sorry, the experiential neuroscience and mental training team. After a master's degree in engineering and a BA in philosophy at the Sorbonne, he did his PhD in cognitive neurosciences in Paris, or Paris, with Francesco Varela, where he applied for the first time his neurophenomenology program to the study of neural correlates of attention and perception. And what makes uh, Antoine so unique is uh, he's one of this kind of new um, breed, so to speak, of contemplative scientists. So he studied since 1998 with teachers including Minjur Rinpoche, Sonia Rinpoche, Matthew Ricard, and Joseph Goldstein. So thank you, Antoine, so much for taking time out of your really busy schedule as a research scientist to spend some time with us, uh, I guess, this morning here and afternoon where you are. So welcome, my dear friend. Uh, welcome, and thank you so much for your, uh, this invitation. I'm really delighted to, to have this opportunity to connect again with you. It's been a while since I, I saw you in Madison as a, as a guinea pig, so it's, it's really fun to see you in, in this context now. Yes, it's been a delight. I'll share with our listeners. My, my first experience with Antoine was, in fact, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is now under the you know, um, stewardship of um, Richie Davidson, one of the leading epicenters in the world, his Center for the Investigation of Healthy Minds. And so I was invited there to engage um, over an entire weekend um, doing studies on pain meditation, some compassion practices and the like. And, and uh, Antoine and I had a fair amount of time to hang out afterwards. And so I, um, I appreciate him as a rigorous scientist and also as a dear friend. And along those lines, Antoine, let's, let's talk ever so briefly about uh, our mutual um, friend, Francesco Varela, because I think on some level we have to pay homage to him and to his legacy. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I had a great opportunity of meeting him actually at Naropa University almost 20 years ago, where he was part of a deep ecology conference with the most eclectic group of scientists from all over the place. And, and I was just completely taken by his brilliance. Um, and so speak to us a little bit about your relationship to Francisco and um, how he influenced you and how his brilliance and dare we say genius really um, in so many ways set the trajectory for, for this deep investigation of mind. Mm. Yeah, well, um, the first time I, I met Francisco, I was, I was kind of looking for a, a balance between some, uh, uh, my quest for meaning in life and, and also my background as a scientist. And I, so I was, do, I was enrolling in this um, cognitive neuroscience program and, and I, I um, I remember like uh, taking his class and uh, and when I, I at the end of the class I realized okay that's exactly what I was looking for so for so many so many years so it was really a uh, really a kind of love at first sight kind of experience when I realized oh he's, he's articulating so well all the the yeah the type of question question I'm interested to to pursue so I was really fortunate to 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 spend time with him and um, so. I, it's hard to, to summarize in a couple of minutes um, all the impact he had, but um, what was I think extraordinary for, I think it was, it was not only a, a very extremely brilliant scientist, but also he was trained as a philosopher yeah, and also as a practitioner. And I think he was also, uh, he was a student of uh, Shogar Trumpa and, and also then um, um, 
bien togolienne. Um, and so, so that making some, some, someone really, um, really the, the, the first of his type to try to, to create these bridges between um, meditation and, and science. And, and to my, to my uh, so far, I think he is the one which I think managed to integrate in the most, in the most, the most complex way the relationship, the nature of the relationship between the two in a way that is not too naive. So what I mean by naive is not a way, but in a way that kind of try to respect the, the, the contribution and the singularity of each perspective yeah. when you study uh, consciousness. Um, what, what struck me is that he tried to, to develop a certain, a new research avenue that he, Labeled neurophenomenology, right. which was uh, trying to articulate the nature of the relationship between uh, a first-person exploration of consciousness and a, a third-person neuroscientific exploration of, of 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 the of the mind of brain. And and what is really unique is, I think, two two key points. F first, he has a, a uh, a very strong interest for epistemology, and I could I could uh, I could develop that in a second. But it, it somehow it, it has to, the same type of emphasis that in meditation you have on wisdom. It's really yeah, try yeah. to understand that what is the nature of knowledge, what is uh, where, where does it start, and 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 that led him to really give primacy to experience uh, as a starting point of everything. Uh, and and he, and then he tried to articulate that. That kind of ontological start of experience with the scientific exploration and, and trying to articulate um, a research program that was both rigorous but without falling in some simple trap, which would be like a, a basic naive reductionism in science. And and um, so I can I can elaborate on that if you want, but it was really trying to 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 find a way to keep the the richness and the singularity of each perspective, yeah. the perspective of the first person, the perspective of the third person, without any form of hegemony of one and the other. And I think that's really unique uh, because in, in many of the dialogue uh, that I, I, I witness between uh, contemplative and neuroscientists, often there, it's true that there, there is a, um, you, you, can, you can see that, 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 that there is a, some, somehow, even if people are respecting the, the contemplative, there is, Still, a sense that of, of a, that ultimately that that's what's, you know, it's more science going to teach what what's what's uh, what meditation is all about, and and it's actually quite hard to to really pin down why why is it so important to to keep um, to keep to keep the uh, a, pro, a primary role to experience, uh, and so that that was the first uh, kind of strong um, thing I got from him and. Then also, at, at the person, he was quite unique. I think it was there is something like that. There was um, something that's hard to do, to describe, but he was. Um, uh, was passion. He had so much yeah, passion. He had passion, and and, and yeah. every every experience actually. What was fascinating at any single experience was for him a, an opportunity to both ex explore that as a scientist, yeah, and yeah. as a practitioner. And just to give you one example, what was. Sure. So when I arrived in, uh, in his lab, he told me, so for first I did my, my, I did my military services um, as a researcher in Berkeley for a year and a half. And he said, when I came back, he told me, okay, you can do your PhD. 
And I say, he told me, listen, Antoine, you have, I have a 50% chance to, to make it, uh, within the next three months. So you need to bet that <laughs> I will, I, I'm on the waiting list of a, of a liver, tra- for a liver transplant. And, uh, and so you, you know, you need to, to take the risk for, to do that. And, and, uh, ultimately he got, he got, he got, uh, he got the, the liver transplant. And what was extraordinary is that uh, during the liver, liver transplant as a practitioner, you know, he was somehow the, the anesthesia didn't work. And, and he's ended up being aware of, of, the, of the operation oh. uh, while being totally anesthetized. anesthetized. And, and, he, and he recognized, and it was for him, it, 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 he, he wrote an article, a scientific article actually after it. And it was also a unique opportunity to practice. And he said that that's where he really, he understood really the, 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 the importance of, of, say, practice like nature of mind and, and how it's totally managed to change his relationship to that experience. And, 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 he, and he got some profound insight through that experience. And it was, for me, uh, that's a great example to, to see him as a neuroscientist trying to all the time asking the question, okay, what's the nature of the, of the mind, both as a first person and as a physiological process? And, and all all his work was extremely coherent and, and you can really see that he was a livid inquiry. So I can stop here, but it's... Uh, no, no, it's beautiful. I mean, so many beautiful topics right off the bat, you know, obviously articulated in one of his most famous books, um, the MIT Press. I remember it so well. I, I waited for it with bated breath and I devoured it, you know, embodied mind, embodied mind, um, that there is in fact... Uh, every every dimension of consciousness mind is has a um, a kind of somatic correlate, whether it's gross or subtle. But I wanted to come back. You, you hit on some really lovely things here, Antoine. And I remember this very well, actually, during the Deep Ecology Conference, that during a presentation, in fact, on classic phenomenology in that conference, um, I remember at the end, Francisco very politely um, challenged the presenter and said, you know, phenomenology itself is fantastic as a kind of philosophical system. But it doesn't have a praxis. It doesn't have a transformational methodology. And so I found it so fascinating that a couple of years later, in fact, uh, when the first time I came across it was in the Journal of Consciousness Studies when he first introduced this now standard term, neurophenomenology. And since then, I mean, that's really one of the, the templates of all the, the, the running research, all the imaging that takes place, like when I was in the scanner, um, I'm having certain experiences and, and you guys are in the lab seeing what's actually happening, what are the signatures in my brain um, that mark that. And so the one thing I I wanted to unpack with you a little bit more, which I think is so important about what you said, is uh, Francisco's brilliance and humility to not reduce one discipline to the other. Uh, You you know, you use the word hegemony or or supremacy or dominance. There's this... you know, kind of almost classic egoic default to try to use one discipline, whether it's science or con- uh, the contemplative traditions, to, you know, which has more explanatory power and, and therefore very easy to slip into um, these kind of absolutistic approaches that, oh, you know, the mystics are simply saying this from a scientific point of view, and there you reduce everything to science. Or conversely, oh, the scientists are really just saying this, and then you reduce everything to um, you know contemplative kind of uh, trajectories. And so, 
to me, I think that's the great gift of of what he has done. This this kind of balance of what obviously you, in his footsteps, continue to do. This very important legacy of honoring both the first person and the third person. Um, but you know, as as brilliant as this all is, um, Antoine, I also want to explore with you. Um, you know, this is kind of the promise of this kind of work. Um, let's let's continue more with the promise and then also the peril. Um, because in fact, you know, I mean, that's one of the things we're talking about. The peril is to reduce one to the other. The promise is to see and honor the respective differences and the contributions that come from both sides. So when you look at this, you know, you're, you are uniquely situated as a um, practitioner of both these tracks what do you see both in your own experience and in your work in fact as the promise and peril of neurophenomenology um, of, of this kind of approach to mind um, and reality actually well, well it's it's uh there are probably multiple uh, way to to answer these questions At least in three domains, you could say like uh, basic knowledge in, in a way, neuroscientific knowledge and knowledge in general. Uh, you could say also clinical knowledge, maybe, uh, or more related to the question of, of uh, yeah, really of suffering. Um, and and then maybe then uh, um, more almost uh, maybe more something more. Uh, Almost ethical, also. So mm. maybe I could try to to uh, explain that uh, a little bit. Now, there are two ways to do it. My, either I could I could give I could start by the neuroscientific one, and, and that may be a little bit um, uh, complex. But let, let me start by the more ethical one. A very okay. simple. One. Okay. Uh, just because it's it's very, it's just happened to me recently, and it's it's really moved me because I I. It was a very clear uh, illustration of exactly the ethical consequences of that. Uh, is that so? I was um, last week. I was invited to a, a meeting online for uh, uh, for um, what's called humanist humanistic medicine. Okay, and uh, so which is a tendency now to to move medicine more into a field that is more. Uh, um, uh, take more experience, um, first, person, first person experience, and and, uh, and also uh, into consideration. And one consequence is what, what was great is that at our meeting, so there was six person invited to the, that, that uh, round table. They invited one patient, and and so it was. So we are, we were like five experts on that topic and one patient, oh. and and I found it really interesting that he. So it was around the role of meditation in medicine, but they, but the, the fact that you use a, a patient was really say something. He said something very profound about the way other patient meditation changed his experience. Oh. I'm going to make the connection to to what what we just discussed. Sure. So let me say what was great is that I I sense that there was a shift to meditation in the way I feel the way that the the medical doctor was also practicing meditation was treating me and how me i was seeing myself as a, a participant to the treatment so say differently in one case 
in one extreme case, the medical doctor will just see the patient as pretty much an object with like a cancer, like a disease, a cancer process, and that you will, and then you will hear to get, receive some drugs, and this drug will work on this particular mechanism, and this is it. And the other way, which is much more complex, which is acknowledging that there are multiple sources of knowledge to a, to a situation, and you can of course treat a patient with cancer with a specific drugs which work in a specific area. But you could also treat it as a certain aspect of the disease, which is how, as an organism, as an agent, the person is experiencing that disease. Whether it has, it has anxiety, distress, uh, the, you know, uh, all the comorbidities that, which come with the disease, which are much more mental. And the patient say that for him it was it was really empowering to to be treated. That, that he felt much more by, by someone who has much first much more empathy with with his condition, treating him as a as a person, and also empowering him with a, a capacity to 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 be part of the treatment itself. Yeah, and so that's I think a great example to I think articulate what is at stake I think with neurofemiology, which is to acknowledge first fundamentally you have different sources of knowledges. Uh, one that and, and, and that which are like third person and one which is actually f f from the first person which is really what it is to be a person and uh now to be a bit more scientific now sure sure uh, you could see that there is almost like a, a kind of a genus face you could yep. somehow you if you want to study consciousness you need to acknowledge that it has really these two faces two modes of donation what is this which is a first person givenness but no matter how you're going to explain the the, pro, uh, the process, it's always going to be here. You're not going to reduce to explain to you everything from your brain. You, you, um, Andrew, will still be Andrew experiencing that. Okay, so so it's 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 really uh, just ontologically different. And but there there is um, what is interesting with with that is that it is also. Um, First, from a so so that that's just to say that there is an articulation of the of that, that two form of knowledge. Yeah, that um, can then um, first, if you if you, if you know, if I go through the three domain I described for scientifically, one idea of Francisco is that you need to train practically someone consciousness to describe itself or to that that this type of process that we call consciousness, if it's from uh, uh, someone who well. Uh, some training in, in, contra in with uh, contemplative training, for instance, he has a much better capacity to uh, reflexively be aware of some aspect of his own mind that are all, all, that that that's that's uh, which are fundamentally interesting to to then constrain to the interpretation and the identification of certain third person processes. So. If you want to take the example of the of the, this patient, if you go into into the science of consciousness, you could also take the participant as a collaborator to in the discovery of of consciousness itself. Mm -hmm. In the same way that you can, if you are the MD, you can take the the the, the patient as part of the, the the treatment itself. You see, and so that that's really the the, the this type of vision is. Um, Give equal importance to the to 
these two modes of donation of consciousness. So I could stop here and, and unpack it, but if you want that, that also at a more fundamental level, scientifically, that corresponds also to a certain view of, of, of the neuroscientific theory that view the um, consciousness as more a self-organizing uh, process that are um, so, so yeah, that, that, that are, that are um, yeah, what, Francisco, um, what Francisco talked about is autopoiesis, right? I mean, wasn't yes, that? Yeah. Yeah. So, actually, yeah, and I know multiple more modern way to talk about it, but they, they, that's congruent with a view of, of cognition, which is more self, uh, more constructivist. When you, uh, reality and perception are, um, um, co-emerge from the, the, the sensory coupling or motor interaction that an agent has with the world. And so in that sense, if you go a little bit more deeper in this dialogue, you could see that what we take as something, uh, what we call the third person or the, the, the reality of science is something actually that is much more uh, uh, flexible or co-construct than what we initially Yes. So that that's a more more a more advanced or third level of neurofeno that is it has potentially a, a, through that engagement with experience and investigation a way to maybe deconstruct some of the the naive view to do science and to perceive uh, scientific objects. I think I I, I love to I, yeah Francisco, uh, Francisco see you you've merged with his mind I just called you Francisco. So Antoine, I would love to go further in, in this arena because this is a this is actually quite a, a deep fascination of mine, uh, my own, and it also connects. You know, in in this particular platform, what we do is we use the medium of the dream um, as a way to uh, explore the nature of mind and reality. And in one of the ways we do that, you know, I think you know, um, in the Buddhist tradition they use the dream as what they call the double delusion or the example dream, you know, to, in a way to really study the creative power of the mind. Um, and I think what you're just saying, let's, let's go up uh, this ladder for a little bit, because I think it's really important that, you know, most of us in the Western world, we just have this kind of given this axiomatic view that there is this world independent of us. We parachute into it at birth. We leave it at death. Solid, lasting, independent, objective, dualistic. Well, I think both from a neuroscientific point of view and a, certainly from a contemplative point of view, that's just a belief system. And so when you're talking about this, please go further about, mm -hmm. about the co-creative, the co-emergent qualities about how, and you know, in my language, it's not so much that we grow into a pre-existing world, but we grow with a no, world. Yeah, exactly. You go, exactly. That's much, thank you for, it's much more precise. Um, so, so, um, let me give you one, one construct that, that, that I, on which we've been working in, a, in our team in Lyon that, that's tried to, to bring into ordinary cognitive science some of these ideas. Um, so we, we are, we are very interested uh, in, um, the notion of, uh, subjective realism that you just mentioned. Subjective is, realism, yeah. Yeah. How much that? How, how does how does it work? That you know, when you you look at visual perception, for instance, we know that on the retina you just have this this constant just this uh, visual signal, uh, and when you move there, that everything is changing. Yet you 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 perceive things when you move your head are are being stable and and solid. 
So somehow one one of the beauty of of our um, mind brain is that it, it it has a capacity to 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 build this kind of very stable reality. Mm-hmm. Now and one one um, one um, area that we've been exploring is the capacity to intentionally suspend some of of, uh, of these processes. Now, um, to do it on perception is, is a bit more advanced, but, uh, uh, and, and Dream is a great example to discuss that, but I just want to give highlight one or two ex- examples on where, where this, this type of process are explored in the literature. So um, one thing that we've been doing, for, to give you an example, is, is to, to look at the... Uh, uh, how, when you see an image, for instance, um, you, you're walking on the, on the streets and you see an ad, and often the ads and the commercials are really designed to, to, um, um, to capture your mind and to, 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 to trigger this kind of grasping mind that is, in, at least in, in, in contemplative tradition, a source of suffering. And, and we work with a, with a, a PhD student, Constanza Paquedano, who is back in Chile, on that on that that regulation of subjective realism by by meditation training, and so uh, during a PhD, she she looked at uh, paradigms that look at food images, and we we look at um, um, uh, we brought people to the lab and asked them for their food preferences, and we present them either like foods that are neutral or food that I really like, and we. Yep. We got that, that first-person rating of it, and then uh, we did a, a mani- we replicate a, a paradigm that already showed the following. It was a work from the group of uh, um, um, uh, from involving uh, um, Laurie Brasselou, and and uh, it's uh, it's uh, looking at the modi- manipulation and um, uh, Papiers and Brasselou. They look at the, uh, how much you can uh, either immerse yourself in a visual image, like a food image. So you can, you can imagine, for instance, uh, your favorite uh, cheesecake. Okay. And you just present this cheesecake. Now, so we all know that there is no cheesecake, right? But the interesting part is that if you really immerse into it, and to the point that it feels real, yeah. what's really happened a lot is that, that you re- people will start typically to report that they start to salivate. And so we, we thought it was a, a really nice way to almost operationalize this very intimate feeling of subjective realism. And so we did a task when there was too manipulation. Either there was doing what I just described, immerse, immersing oneself into a food image to the point that you feel that salivation. And then the person was doing a task, which was uh, what we call in, in psychology an approach avoidance task. Approach avoidance task. Approach avoidance, yeah. So they, they just see the same image again, but they were more in the background. And and uh, and uh, in the foreground, you get a cue that you either it could be a square or a circle. And you your task was to press in one hand when it was a, a circle, and, and, uh, and you press on the other hand when it was a square. It wasn't on the on the, on the images, okay? The interesting thing is that. You could, you could. Uh, then once you press it, the the image could either come toward you or, uh-huh. or going away from you. So it has this notion of 
uh, it creates an habit of either uh, an approach or avoidance habits. Yeah. Which is, you know, as you know, in meditation, it's so important. That's really this movement of the mind to, to bring it to you or to avoid. And we found that um, what, what is known in the literature is that when you do this type of manipulation, the, the work of, of, uh, of Papiers and Barcelou, that you, you create a, bi a bias, such as when you, you have to uh, avoid, press to the cue that is leading to an avoidance, and you really like the image, you have a motor response that is a little bit longer because in your brain there is kind of a conflict in your mind that you, you need to press a button that leads to avoidance, but you really like the cheesecake. And so you can behaviorally then subtract a condition when you, you know, when you approach and avoid or something you like, you dislike, and you, you, you can have a behavioral measure of this bias, cognitive bias that is induced by the subjective realism. And what was really cool is that um, with this paradigm, we found that um, um, the more people were immersed in the food before, the more um, you had, a, first, you have, the more you had a salivation after it. So you can really see that you know, the mind can trigger something mental, can trigger something physiological. And that also then will, will increase the bias that you have behaviorally. So that was a great, almost description of how something purely mental can impact the body and then impact behavior later on. And, and the more people were describing that this sense of tickiness in the mind, the more you could see the bias. And then interestingly, when we did a, another condition, when we learned to be mindful and just observe things as just being mental, right. look at emotion as just being an emotion, we, we saw that this bias didn't appear. So it was, I think, a really nice, and then we, we also EEG manipulation, like electroencephalography, showing that the, the, that there was a, this bias for food was uh, related to um, an early um, uh, brain potential that, that showed that there was already a real, a real allocation of attention that was facilitating this bias. So what I really like with this paradigm, you can almost tell a, like a, a Dharma, Dharma story about, about how um, um, the engagement that you have mentally with the world uh, that, that then, then create habits and, and, um, and then how mindfulness could potentially uh, help to downregulate some of these habits or deautomatize some of the brain. Exactly. Now, what was the, so we, 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 we discussed this notion in terms of, of it's sometimes called cognitive fusion in the literature or, or when you are subjective realism, how you fuse with, with perception. And, and so meditation can be viewed as a, as a, as a mechanism to derify or, or, or decenter from that. Absolutely. And, and in the clinical literature, what is really fascinating is that that, that construct of decentering or cognitive diffusion or derification is in, in a very recent study from the group of Zinal Ziegel in, in Toronto one of the best predictors of prevention in relapse, in depression. Oh, wow. So you can really see that that, that construct of, of that, that what we're talking here is not some you know, very abstract philosophical uh, notions. It has very, first you can track down that with, at a process in, in the brain and behavior, and it has also very important clinical implication. 
therapeutic implications. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. I had such a fun time talking to my friend. And thanks, of course, to Antoine for sharing his vast knowledge and wisdom. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. There's a lot going on right now. But until next time, pleasant dreams.